The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Studies have shown that in childhood, if you experience significant social and emotional challenges, it can actually increase your risk of developing a psychiatric disorder as an adult. It is only normal for a parent or a caregiver to worry and want as much as possible for the transition from middle school to high school to be positive in order to prevent any long-term mental health issues for their child. So today on MediTalk, we speak with Naomi Turpus, a psychologist at Clear Health Psychology who has spent many years working as a school psychologist to provide us with some tips on how we can help our teens better manage the transition from middle school to high school. What are some common feelings that a parent may be experiencing when their child is transitioning from from that primary to middle to high school? Mm. I think like with any, like you're saying, with any transition, any unknown is that fear of the unknown. And especially when you're talking about your children who you love, that fear of the unknown can be pretty intense. And is it a fear that, I mean, that they're going to be interacting with older children and what they might be exposed mm. to? It, it can be that. It can be a whole lot of things. It's just just not knowing what's going to be happening in life generally sets people on edge. The, um, the human brain doesn't like ambiguity. It likes to know what's going to happen and it's literally processing information constantly purely in order to be able to predict what's going to be able to happen, what's going to happen, so that it can prevent getting hurt. And then how are, the, how are children feeling about that transition? Because I would imagine, I mean, I think back myself, um, and I think, you know, it's that real mixture of anxiety, not, as you say, those feelings of the unknown, mm. but also that a little bit of excitement. of Oh, absolutely. And um, I tend to get a bit, <clears throat> I don't know, I think I tend to get a bit technical and boring sometimes, so excuse this. <laughs> no, we're here is to that, learn. <laughs> is that um, the words we use to describe our experience are so important. So um, we're uh, words like anxious, excited, nervous, they're all words that are explaining a physiological response that's taking place in our body in response to an unknown. And then the words we put on top of that can then lead us into a different direction. So calling, um, I remember I remember really clearly having this conversation with my daughter years and years and years ago. She's now 25. And we were driving to school and she had a um, sports carnival on. And like, she's a little Greek goddess and fabulously athletic and <laughs> runs like a gazelle. and But she also wants to do well, just like all of us. And I remember her saying to me, Mum, I feel really nervous. And I'm like, oh, you're feeling excited. Your body's becoming physiologically excited so they can get ready to run. And just having that knowledge just seemed to click with her that it made sense. Her experience she was having made sense. So is it was it, it can actually be so powerful just changing the word from anxiety Absolutely. to excitement. Absolutely. And making sense of it because, like I said, we don't like to not know. So the more information we can give 
people, the more accurate information makes a massive difference. And so when I see people individually in sessions, I actually spend quite a, quite a bit of time deliberately explaining this and we call it psychoeducation. Um, but it fills in those little gaps in knowledge so that we can start making sense. Because like I said, the brain's processing information. It's putting all these little pieces of the puzzle together, rattling around in the back of the brain there. And then the brain communicates its conclusion to us, the part that does the noticing, that part. Our brain communicates this to us so that we have an understanding of what's going on so that we can start interacting with our environment to keep us safe everything boils down to trying to stay alive and keep safe. So in the context of a transition to high school, that can be massively, massively scary for parents because we love our kids. Mm. And it's like our, our, our goal in life is to be able to raise these children to, again, I'm going to start sounding technical, to, to you know, sexual maturity so that they can <laughs> create the next generation and then we can kick the bucket and know that the species is going to survive. That's, that's what's occurring underneath, behind the scenes, in the back of our brain. We're just not necessarily aware of that. So me communicating this information to people sort of gives them that sense of what's going on and they can, they can then be able to experience what they're experiencing instead of trying to instinctively get away from it. To get away from that discomfort, mm -hmm. our instinct is to pull away. So we literally can feel pain in our fingertips so that we can pull our hand out of the fire so we don't get hurt. We just have to be mindful that that's always in play. And do you see sometimes the parents' anxiety or I'm trying to think of now other words. Yeah, I know, anxiety. right? I know. And it just... The responsibility that comes with knowledge. I know. <laughs> I think... Whether it's also the... It's um, empowering too, isn't it, then? Yeah. How can you help both the parent mm. and the child to go through this transition smoother together? Yeah, well, again, like I was saying, this is what we call psychoeducation and this is how I usually start when I first meet a new client. And, and I'd be quite repetitive because it can take a while for this to, for want of a better word, sink in, but also to be um, the sort of go-to response. So to understand that what they're experiencing is normal and that there's a purpose to that so that they can find meaning in that in a way that it aligns with their values. So values of love and kindness and caring and compassion, that's what those feelings are meaning. They feel that, they, that feeling, that physical feeling, and then the words we put on it uh, are just telling us that we care about our kids, mm. you know. And so it's just that parents don't often communicate that to their children. Rather, they um, these raw um, emotions and then the words that the vocabulary we use to explain our experience comes out, and then that takes on a, a different meaning to the little kids. And kids have been taking notice of what their parents have been doing since they came out of the womb. <laughs> this is this is what they do. It's just that the language needs to be provided for them to be able to make sense of it. Otherwise, they're just running on pure instinct. They sense the parents are feeling uncomfortable and then they then become um, sort of alert to where's that danger in the environment. And especially dads. Dads play a massive part. Mm. So I remember, I say this to clients too, I remember... Um, experiments that we read about when we we're at uni and um, I can't remember the, the exact the exact person that did this experiment but they have a scenario where they'll have little um, like baby toddler you know crawling sort of little kids mm. in the center um, like crawling around on a rug and then the experimenter will make a loud noise or something that will be like a, a warning a fear alert type thing for the baby and the babies will instinctively look to the father 
Is that right? Mm. So I guess the father from an evolutionary perspective is that the biggest, strongest one that can take on any, on any threats. Um, they will look to the father and if the father's losing his nerve, losing his beep, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, then that really sets the kids off too. They think, gee, if, that, if, he, if he's not coping with this, how on earth am I going to be able to cope? And they just lose it. Yeah, so it's so important. Yeah, it's so important for parents to keep their head, you know, head on um, when they're going through things that are difficult because it really does teach their children about what's actually unsafe and what's what's safe. So bringing it back to that school context, mm. the unknown, parents, what parents can do is they can find out as much as they can about the school their kid's attending and usually in year six um, they'll have a trans, we call it, you know, like a, a transition because I'm also a school psychologist. Yes. Did we mention that? Yes. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. So that's that's a, a massive part of what we do in year six is that we support the school to be able to transition their year sixes to high school. And I tell you, the year six teachers, they're, they're very concerned about kids too. Like they love these kids and, and um, you know, just like parents, teachers may not always show it. <laughs> Um, or communicate that clearly that they really care about these kids so much mm. and they really want them to do well when they get to high school and they're aware that the high school environment is so different than the primary school environment, you know, and we know that um, kids do struggle, you know. They they struggle and those struggles um, are uh, manifested in the or uh, noticed in the suspension rate for year sevens now so year sevens in primary school when they're in primary school had a lower suspension rate and year eights in high school had a high suspension rate now year sevens in high school have a high suspension rate and kids in year six um, are becoming a very high um, there's a very high uh, spike in the suicide and self-harming risk assessments that school psychologists do is in that primary from year six to year seven transitioning from middle yeah. school to high school or yeah. primary to middle school. Um, doesn't yeah we don't really differentiate between that. So it's just that last last year of primary school. Now there's this massive spike that I think it almost if it surpasses year ten um, in high school. I think it does. I think it's the high well if not the yeah. highest but high spike. But well and truly nothing like what we've seen before. So that basically is showing us that year sixes are really stressing out mm. a lot. So the way the parents respond to that stress is crucial. So instinctively, parents would respond to that stress, um, for want of a better word, quite defensively, as in they will, they will feel that distress of their child and they themselves will respond with this pull their hand out of the fire type response. Mm. And that can then reflected back on the you know the child looking back at the parent can further stress the child out so the parents need to really be mindful of that and to keep their head on straight during this whole process um support the child but not scare the child mm. well it sounds like i mean modeling is just oh, num number one exactly. priority modeling yeah. calmness but also you've talked about a practical uh, tip for us all um to prepare both the children and the family really through the transition is maybe find out at the school if there's some transitional activities absolutely meaning maybe perhaps there's um you can go and meet the teachers or yeah, those sort absolutely. of things uh, parents have rights kids have rights um use them ring the school ask them what they're doing what what they're planning um how they're how they're um supporting the transition how they're supporting year sevens in a 
in a um, you know high school environment. Yeah, because some schools, it's been left a lot to the individual schools to decide how they do this. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we don't want to make any assumptions about how the schools are doing it and they're do some are doing it quite different. And would yeah. most schools have a psychologist? Every school will have a school psychologist, yeah, at government schools. Government schools. Yeah, every government school will have a school psychologist. They may just not um, necessarily be seen um, by the parents and the students, they're definitely there. And a lot of our work is behind the scenes in supporting the staff to be able to support the students and the parents. So actually as a psychologist in a high school, most of our work is with adults. And is it good to sort of maybe reach out to the teacher if you get to know the teacher? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Once school starts and you have that, you know who that te the teachers are, absolutely communicate with the teachers. Ring up, talk to them, email, you know, email them if you can, ask questions. Um, and while you're doing all of that, notice as a parent your own emotional response to this whole scenario because we know that um, that's how the brain works too. It's sort of like how am I going to predict what's going to happen? It looks for previous experiences. So for parents, our previous experiences of being at high school probably weren't that great. <laughs> I was about to say because I think often we'd reflect back on our own experience yeah. <laughs> of high school and if it wasn't overly positive, exactly. then maybe our own those fears that um, yeah. we had as children. We predict the worst. Yeah. We're prepared for the worst. So it's it's a tip too for parents to be aware of that, that that, again, for want of a better word, trigger them. Yeah. <laughs> and to, to notice that, um, notice all those feelings and memories that come back and make space for them, allow them to be there, um, hold them lightly, um, definitely do not try to push them away because then as soon as you push something away, that just becomes your focus. Actually, I heard a great quote the other day. It was, um, oh, it was saying, um, uh, what you feel you can heal. And it was essentially saying that yeah. you know, until you yeah. actually feel those feelings or allow yourself like to feel that. the feelings, you can't heal them. And I thought, what a yeah. good, what a good way of seeing feelings. Because often we, you know, as you say, it's that, mm. um, Instant. Naturally, we don't want to really deal with difficult things. No, because at a, at a very base level, that's death, <laughs> you know, and like I said, that's that permeates everything all the time. It's always in play. It just sort of like hides away in the little, you know, nooks and crannies of and your life. It pops up occasionally. It absolutely does, and you'll be surprised and you'll be like, uh, as my daughter said like recently, she goes, we, we need to be open and to, to be curious and to be amazed at it and be like, Oh, I didn't notice you hiding in there. <laughs> you know, like, oh, fancy that. But it's like to marvel at that, that how that that instinct to avoid pain is always there. It's just that we don't always recognise that it's there. True. Yeah, but we need to be prepared for it. You know? And then if you want to start those conversations and you're, you know, picking up your kids from school and often, you know, you'll hear parents and, uh, you know, I've got a bit of a teaching background and... Um, you know, and you'll hear parents say, how was school? <laughs> and mm. I think, and, I hope we could like, and you always get a response <laughs> that's either quite s single commented back. And I think, what are some great questions maybe that we need to rephrase um, when we're trying to get those, you know, conversations happening between parent and child that are yeah. maybe have more substance than 
yeah, you just crack or <laughs> yeah, and and it's be prepared to ask a few questions. <laughs> Don't just take the first answer, <laughs> but also ask questions that are like open ended and not just closed, yes or no, good, bad, because kids, you know, they don't realise, but they will just respond with if if the the cue is a, a closed one word answer, then they'll give you that one word answer, and then we tend to like um, in our own minds then sort of expand on that and and all these networks of association and our past experiences of school become attached to that one word and then we get worked up and then the kid gets worked up and yeah so it's it's asking questions like, like you know um you know uh tell me something interesting that happened today or um something that you know what was what was the the best thing that happened for you today or the most you know um surprised what was surprised you or what did you learn or, you know, what did you do at lunchtime or, you know, is there anything you want to tell me about your day, you know, is anything, yeah, something that's that's going to be playing on their mind especially, you know, yeah. I suppose it's also being patient that sometimes the first time you answer ask it, it might not be answered, but eventually mm. when someone feels comfortable they'll start yeah. sharing. Yeah, and also the tone you use because it can be like, and we can be quite leading too with um, questions like, um, Oh, that um, that teacher was mean to you today again, wasn't he? You know, or did so and so, you know, bully you? I hate the word bully, by the way, but anyway, um, did they do that to you today? So it's quite leading, and kids can kids want to engage with their parents, and they want to have those conversations, and they pick up without even realizing those cues of topics that mum or dad really want to talk about a lot. So then kids can sort of tell you what you want to hear in a way, or what they think you want to hear. Um, sort of like an attention thing, but that's normal as well. So it's just being mindful as a parent that all of those things could be happening in the same time as well. And do you think it's also important to put it put things in perspective? Because I would imagine the first one or two weeks are going to be the hardest. Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose it's not putting too much weight on the first one or two weeks and knowing that mm. as people build relationships, their peer groups are building and the relationship with the teacher who's going to be yeah. new or the new school community perhaps they've moved schools as well yeah. in that transition it, do you think perhaps we all put too much weight on the first few weeks and make quick judgment calls on how their rest of their high school is going to be yeah I think a lot of parents do that you're right yeah I think so being prepared for that as a parent that that will come up and that will be in play as well and notice that's there and those urges to you know um, put everything down to the first couple of days and just let them be there without pushing those thoughts and feelings away and then um, be helpful to your your, um, your kids so like help them be organized help them um, you know have what they need in their school bag ready make sure that you know all the usual things having a good night's sleep the night before um, try not to have a fight two seconds before you kick them out of the car to the classroom, present that you're on the same team as the school. The relationship you have with the school is so important and the way the kids view your relationship with the school is really important. So quite often what parents can do without even realising is they sort of set the kid up for disaster by sort of effectively getting on the, you know, um, your teacher's not nice person type bandwagon or that principal, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then they sort of set their kid off to school to, you know, set them over enemy enemy lines every day. And that's really stressful for the kid too. Um, so it's, yeah, like being on the same page with the school, um, uh, you know, letting your kid know that you can sort out um, problems if they come up and you'll problem solve them together, but not taking over 
for the kid either. So we want to balance, isn't yeah. It? So we want to build their problem solving skills versus solving problems for them, um, and this is a really important um, yeah skill that they will learn for life. So. Again, this is a lot of what I talk about in sessions and it's it's using an approach called the collaborative and proactive solutions model. Um, and if the listeners want to go to the livesinthebalance.org website, mm -hmm. there's a ton of free information um, that they can then read up on and use that as a model to structure the conversations that they have with their school. So it can be quite stressful when parents... Um, either may need to call for a meeting at school or whether the call uh, call comes from the school to have a meeting or a case conference, that's what we call it, um, that can be quite, you know, stressful for the parent. So if they have this um, model sort of up their sleeve, um, they can take that to a meeting and that can structure the language they use to communicate with the school and that will help set, I guess, the school um the staff sort of take the edge off for them as well and it becomes this really beautiful um, collaborative problem solving together a team working together to support the kids there's no blaming there's no blaming parents there's no blaming the school which is instinctively where we go you know we feel pain and we find, try to find out where, what direction it's coming from and then we try to eliminate it <laughs> um, yeah but see the thing the kid needs to go back to school the next day too when is okay or when should parents really get involved? Because mm. um, that must be tricky, you know, because you, you're hoping that they'll problem solve or it'll work itself out in time. Mm. But when is a situation enough that a parent would say, actually, mm. I think I need to call a meeting? I or think definitely you would want to do that. Um, I, mean, I mean, at any time, like if you're just ringing the school to talk to the teacher or whatever, but if the kid's like not wanting to go to school, um, that's like a really serious sign that something needs to be done um, because schools want kids to come to school it's just that the the approach they may use to I guess figure out what's getting in the kids way um, it may make it worse for the kids so then it ends up having this like negative rebound effect sort of thing going on so if the kids saying they don't want to come to school definitely that's a point where you're like can we check in and see what's happening is there anything going on um, especially if your child has any type of learning difficulty or um, if your child's had a, I mean, definitely if your child's had a history of some, you know, traumatic stuff that's gone on in the background, that's going to make any new experience for them quite even more um, stressful. stressful, yeah, because they're, they're trying to predict what's going to happen within the context of knowing that bad stuff can happen. Yeah, so if if you think that your child might have any difficulty, definitely reach out to the school and say, look, can we have a we have a get together, have a meeting? Um, maybe we need to sort out a a way of responding to my kids' um, concerns or, or the parents' concerns, and get that all out on the uh, you know out on the table. Yeah, early, um, better early than later, definitely. And then what, so that's some really good points. So that if your child is not really verbalising what's going on, mm. that's a great one in that if if your child's not going to or not wanting to go to school, it's definitely mm. a sign that. Well, something's definitely going on. It's just that we, you, you know, we our mind will go to the worst place, I guess, the worst mm. case scenario because we love them, you know. Um, so it can be the way we, again, the way we ask um, the kid what's going on that can sort of stop them from talking or not talking. So it's always a good idea to, again, if the listeners go to that Live in the Balance, Lives in the Balance website um, and look at 
um, the collaborative and proactive solutions model. Um, that will give some great tips about what to say and what not to say. Yeah. And then how do parents find that balance because you're yourself a parent as well as being a psychologist? Mm. How have you found um, finding that balance between, you know, allowing your children enough freedom to make mistakes, mm. to, to fall down and let them get up? And I think, oh, yeah. you know, we, you know, as a parent you do it, you know, when they're little, you know, riding mm. a bicycle, but then suddenly mm. they get to, you know, teenagers and we mm. do, you don't want them to take any risks and you, you know, want them to be very risk averse to not learn. Yeah, but that's a massive part of growing up, isn't it? It's taking risks. It, it's that stepping out into the unknown. It's just for parents to, to be prepared for that and that this is a normal part of growing up and to respond to your kids, um, I guess, mistakes. Um, with compassion and love um, and uh, let let your kids know that you expect them to make mistakes and that that's all a part of growing and to be open to them about the mistakes that you made. I mean, be open and honest. It's it's called having lived experience, yeah, you know. Absolutely. You know, and appropriate self-disclosure. It's, it's letting the kid know that you're not perfect and therefore you don't expect them to be perfect and that you don't, you're not going to be, you know, um, disgusted in them doing some dumb stuff, you know, but you're going to be open and you're going to be there and you're going to be there for them when they need you the, to be their safety net. That's, that's your job. You and I know? think it, it's, um, you want them to think of you to call you at all hours of the morning if Absolutely. they're stuck somewhere unsafe or. Absolutely. Make you sure you tell them that explicitly. I've said that to my kids too. I don't care no matter what time of the, of the night, early morning, you ring me and I will be there. Yeah. You know, I love you. Yeah. You know, and I may not always have a smile on my face <laughs> because I'm tired, but I love you. And, and if you've given your kid that impression that you, you know, you, um, your love for them is somehow diminished because of what they've done. And if you have any, any, um, you know, hint of that that's how they might have interpreted you, then make sure they know that that's not the truth, you know. And then I can say sorry if you stuff up, you know, show that humility because you want them, that's modelling, you want them to be able to do that, you know. You want them to be able to do that to themselves as well. I mean, I suppose that's where learning self-compassion for self. Absolutely. As a if you can do it as an adolescent, all power to you because I'm certainly And it's going to be so hard. Like I think we can all look back at when, you know, we were that age. It was really hard. Oh. I, I, I say it to kids, it's like, or to parents, it's like, you know, all these old sayings, you, you know, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make a drink, you can't put an old head on young shoulders, you've got to learn the hard way, you know, and that's the truth. You learn, we learn through doing and then reflecting on our experience and reflecting with compassion, you know, enables us to pick ourselves back up and, and keep trying and give it another, you know? give it yeah. another go the next day. And, uh, yeah, and I tell you, Danae, these kids have got such a, they they have it so hard because yeah. they're exposed to so much stuff. So much. I was only thinking about this the other day, and I was like, I mean, mobile phones. This is showing my age, but they certainly weren't. I didn't have one until. You imagine I was, if they had I mobile phones when we were fifteen. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, I remember. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't get my own mobile phone. I think I was maybe twenty or something. But I remember, um, you know, when you'd make a plan as a teenager, you'd just make a phone call and like, I will be there at this time, and that was it. Mm. But I think. Imagine that pressure of having your phone all the time, emails, the stress of social media. 
I don't know if I, I, I reckon they've got it tough. They've got it hard. Like, like I said at the beginning, our brain is constantly processing information to make sense of the world and we make it from our own reference point, you know, and teenagers, we call it being egocentric. Like this is their, their job at that age is to understand who, you know, who am I? That's the identity formation. Um, so they're processing all this information and now it's like, I mean, it's going to sound funny coming from a psychologist, I guess, because a lot of people have, you know, different perspectives of how psychologists think about the human experience. But as a teenager, it's like now, oh, great, um, I'm not smart enough, pretty enough, skinny enough, popular mm. enough, and now I'm not mentally healthy enough too. Thanks, world. Thanks for that. So that's a massive thing that I see is that kids will start Googling, and, and parents too, like people's is people's. So we'll go to Dr. Google, we'll start Googling, where do we start looking? Oh, symptoms of criteria of disorders. And that's how we start viewing ourselves as human beings, as being this flawed, defective, ill, broken, you know, piece of meat. You know, it's just not fair. And teenagers are the worst at it, you know. And then they, that sort of, that information that they're becoming flooded with shapes who they see themselves as a person, basically that there's something wrong with them and that they need to feel better. Yeah. And feel good all the time. Absolutely. And that that's somehow... Another myth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, so that's, that's it. It seems to be, oh, that's our base, you know, baseline. You know, we're meant to be happy. Well, that's nonsense. The human brain is literally hardwired to produce psychological pain and suffering. <laughs> and it does that so it can detect it, so that it can pull away from it if it needs to. But then we end up pulling away from the stuff in life that makes it meaningful, you know, so that pain, that heartache tells you you care about something, you know, and if we pull away from it, then we don't have that stuff we care about and then life feels empty and meaningless. So know? when you've got a child that you're, um, that you're trying to help and they're really being affected by social media, what are some mm. tips that you help, uh, that you recommend for teens well, that are really yeah. struggling with well, social media? Yeah, well, see, a lot of what a a lot of parents will do it'll be a manifestation of some form of that pulling your hand out of the fire and they jump into solutions which is okay well just don't go on social media then. yes and then you won't take off that app <laughs> yeah and then you won't feel like that anymore yeah but the role i take in my work is not about getting people to feel better it's getting them better at feeling stuff so getting better at noticing their physiological response, getting better at noticing um, the thoughts that pop into their head that tell them they're not good enough and get better at having that and letting it be there and being open to it and, and appreciating that this is what it means to be a normal human being and not a robot, yeah. So would an example be, so if they're following someone that that doesn't make them feel good about themselves, their shape, who they are, mm. just don't follow them, just you know, or, or try and bring those, if they are, are on Instagram, try and follow mm. people that make them feel good, that they can, that they well, feel joy. Yeah, and, and, and it's not just about that feeling again, but it's like finding, finding people that share your values in life. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you have these inspirational, courageous people, then they're going to be a benefit to you. But if you have people that are just trying to make you feel good, that sort of pulls you into that happiness trap yeah, right. where you have to have the most. I mean, I've, I'm seeing people that, no offence to people out there that do this, but it sort of concerns me when people put filters on their newborn babies. Oh, my gosh. Are people really doing that? Yeah. Oh. And you sort of think, wow, what what's going on there? Yeah. That is it? Yeah. So it's not like we can just trying to feel good can pull us into 
this happiness trap. Yeah, and I say to people, not trying to feel stuff and only wanting to feel good leads to drugs and not wanting to feel uncomfortable stuff leads to death. You know, that's the only, the only way you can have have no pain and only feel good, you know. So saying to someone, that's it, I'm taking the phone away is not the answer. Yeah, I'm pretty sure parents already know that's not the answer. <laughs> Yeah, that's not going to work. Um, that just leads to um, de uh, deception. <laughs> you know, it's it's having these conversations, kid, of getting it that oh wow, and when they're when they're feeling stressed out, go wow, I can really feel that. I'm I'm you know I've I can tell you I've been there, mate. You know, it's really tough, and but I'm here for you, and we'll get through this together. And you know, the the life can be amazing. And it can be really horrible, but also be amazed in that too. <laughs> you know, we can feel this full spectrum of the human experience. Yeah. And then, I mean, we all know going into high school academically, children are under increased pressure to, oh, to do well. Like, and I remember just myself, you know, there was so much pressure in year 11 and 12. You've got to do well to get this grade to get into university. Realistic, really. What a load of, load of nonsense. What a load of. <laughs> what a load of nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, Sorry, I, everyone out there. <laughs> well, listen, I think I wish someone had really talked honestly and openly about the importance of social and my emotional well-being at that absolutely. time. What's your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's a bit of a it's, – it's like we um, – we try to make things seem more important so kids will take notice of it, but they are taking notice of it and then they're amplifying it themselves and they're, they're crapping themselves over it. Mm. So then instinctively they will try to avoid the thing that's difficult so then they don't end up studying. It actually makes things worse for them, you know. Um, uh, and also it's not it's not true that this is the most important thing that you're ever going to do in life. I'm sure parents, as a parent, don't reflect on their experience being a parent and think that's not the most important and that their teenage years was the most important thing in their life. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. So it's sort of like we need to be realistic and honest to the kids and say, look, yeah, do, look, do actually do your best. Um, and ironically for parents, not to be too overly impressed when kids do do well. I know this is going to sound weird, but we always say to kids, look, I... I Parents will say, look, I told him I don't care about the grades. I just want him to, I mean, be yeah, happy. Be happy. <laughs> and the kid's like, well, how the frick do I do that? But also the fact that we do smile and and encourage them when they do well, they, those actions speak louder than words. So we're sort of like we are sort of telling them the way we respond is actually telling them we want you to do well, we're smiling when you do well, the kid wants to do well, they want us to be happy too. And so then, yeah, they sort of really bust a gut over trying to do that. And that stress that sort of mm -hmm. comes with that just makes all the learning even more difficult. So, again, um, like I mentioned before, help help your kids be prepared. So help them structure a study timetable. Help them, help them um, understand that, yeah, they're going to experience these urges not to study because as soon as they sit down to study, the thoughts and feelings of I'm going to fail show up yeah, and instinctively we try to get rid of them and we do that effectively by not studying. <laughs> yeah. But then and, and, and keeping busy and, um, you know, 
uh, we, we will hear this a lot, like if you're feeling stressed and anxious, just take a break and do something enjoyable and read a book and listen to music and have fun and go be with your friends. And then when you go to bed at night, um, those thoughts and feelings when you try to relax, they, those thoughts that you've been trying to push away all day and you start to relax and you're, little, um, you know, you, you're not able to push them away anymore and then you become flooded with all those thoughts and feelings of, oh, my God, why did I waste my time all day? I should have been studying. Yes. <laughs> and you feel guilty. Yeah, and then you can't sleep. Yes. So then that's it you up for a worse day the next day and the cycle continues so it's it's sort of like being spoiler alerts for your kids and just saying yeah yeah this is bound to happen this is what this is this is what everyone experiences you know no one tells you this kid but this is actually what we all go through and this is how we've coped with it um sometimes the way we cope with it makes our life worse yeah and sometimes it can make it a lot easier and it's easier if we just let those thoughts and feelings be there and accept that and be willing to experience them because those thoughts and feelings tell us that we're normal so for example you can respond to i'm not good enough with i'm having the thought i'm not good enough i'm noticing i'm having the thought i'm not good enough that that's separate to us that's seeing your thoughts and feelings for what they are not what they say they are and then what do you do with those feelings? So once you're aware of those feelings, do you journal them? Do you then try and find someone that you feel comfortable to talk to yeah, them absolutely. about? Talk, getting them out of your mouth is sort of a way of being able to focus on them and let them be there. That's the opposite of bottling them up and trying to push them away. So it's not necessarily that the talking about things will magically make you feel better, but it will, like I said, get you better at feeling stuff. So while you're talking to somebody, you're having this stuff show up. And the way that the other person can respond to you is being mindful of their instinct to to pull their own hand out of the fire and, and to pull yours out of the fire while they're at it and allow that to be there as well. So for the adult to be open, listening, curious, um, not judgmental, not in any way, shape or form trying to take your pain away, like instinctively, if, you, if I said to you, oh, Danae, I'm not feeling good enough, your instinct will be saying, no way, Naomi. Exactly. I'm already about to say it. And that's just not the... You'll be like, you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but what should I be saying? You should be going, I get it. Yeah. You'll be getting it. You say, look, my, you know what? I get that. And my mind tells me that too. And be like, you know what, Naomi? Take comfort in the fact that that shows up because that tells you you care. And so really it's like empathy is so powerful is because that's what Compa I'm hearing yeah compassion compassion yeah so responding with kindness um versus responding with feeling so quite often this um we say you know people say compassion fatigue but it's really an empathy fatigue mm -hmm. so when you're empathizing with someone you're feeling their pain it's like when you watch a sad movie and you feel that and you start crying yes. you know and then we become this sort of our um, basic emotional instinct and drive and, and for us to pull a hand out of that pain, you know, that sort of kicks in. So, again, being mindful that that will show up, being mindful that we're feeling stuff and then respond to that, the other person's feeling and the feeling we're feeling in that moment with kindness and compassion and love. And it sounds like, you know, old-fashioned now to talk about love, but that's, that's what binds us all together. We're human beings, you know. It's not a defect to care about something. You know? So that can that that is really a powerful a really powerful feeling to tap into. Yes, especially when trying to survive transitioning by the sound of Absolutely. it. Absolutely, because remember, every day we're sending our kids into an unknown. You know, we we, we want to teach them to be to marvel at the to be curious, 
you know, um, of the experiences we're going to have and to be open to have them and to, to communicate them with other people and being mindful of, of not trying to push those thoughts away and invalidate them when other people have them and say, oh, don't be silly, that's nonsense. What are like three really practical tips to get people through that transition that they might be facing this year at school? I think definitely communicating with the school is so important. Um, having an understanding of what your kid is um, experiencing at school, like with the learning content, um, the, the subjects that they're doing, having an understanding of, of what they're doing at school is fantastic. And being open to experience the ups and downs that you're naturally going to have in any transition or new experience. And I suppose we just have to think of when we transition going from one job to another. Absolutely. As adults, I suppose and that's the same exactly. and the emotional roller coaster that exactly. we go through, the learning curves and the... Yeah, and that that's normal and that our kids will get better at being able to handle that through handling it. You don't get better at it by avoiding it. So, And I... I think um, tra the transition of schools is a is a great uh, a great life lesson for resilience as an adult, isn't it? If they can, is, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Danae. A big thank you to Naomi for sharing her knowledge with us today on MediTalk. And to learn more about Naomi, visit clearhealthpsychology.com.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share, as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of MediTalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.